the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi there, and welcome to episode 25 of Planted with Sarah. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have Emma Chasen, cannabis educator and industry consultant at Eminent Consulting. So I am so excited to have you here today, Emma, especially because um, I always love to talk to people who, like me, have spent time behind the bar. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here and chat with you as well. So one of the things that, well, actually, before we get into that, because I just, I've been really excited to geek out with you because I love connecting with fellow educators. But first off, what what was your first experience with cannabis and what drew you to working in cannabis? Mm, so my, my first experience with cannabis was in college. I had actually adopted a really kind of puritanical attitude in high school where I was like, no drugs, no drinking. I'm just fully focused in on my schoolwork and um, really with the motivation to, to get into Brown and just like, you know, be that person. I always was like, oh, I'd rather eat chocolate cake than <laughs> take drugs, whatever, stupid. Um, chocolate is I good, though. Brown, <laughs> yes, it is. And it does It does give a certain kind of high if you're in the right, right situation. It sure does. But um, <laughs> when I did actually get into Brown, I, um, I was able to kind of disrupt that negative stigma that I had held so true around people who use cannabis, people who use alcohol, just people who use any mind-altering substance because, I mean, here I was with some of the most brilliant people in the world and most of them were consuming cannabis. And so that was my first kind of inclination that like, whoa, okay, what I, what I kind of held to be true, it may not be true. And then I quickly joined an acapella group and I, um, became just like really pretty enamored with this girl who she was a junior. So she was an upperclassman. I was a freshman and she was brilliant studying neuroscience was going to get her MD. um, And she smoked weed all of the time. And as I started to kind of hang out with her, I, um, really wanted to impress her. And so I like, like, Oh, teach me, teach me how to smoke. And so we like went back to her dorm room one night and she like packed the bowl for me and like did the whole thing. Um, and I, I smoked with her and I didn't get high that first time, but it, um, it definitely (laughs) gave me the courage to act like I was high. So I was like, Oh yeah, let's cuddle, whatever. We ended up making out and, and like the rest is kind of history there where we dated for two years and she was really the one who, um, helped me kind of, really reframe my idea around cannabis and my idea around uh, psychedelics and just those classes of drugs as things that can be such agents for self-discovery and growth rather than, you know, the, the negative kind of stigma that it just generates apathy and you lose yourself and you lose control, et cetera. Um, and simultaneously, while I was having this kind of personal exploration, I was taking a freshman seminar called Botanical Roots of Modern Medicine, where we studied, you know, the the ethnobotany of different plants and the way that they were used in ritual and ceremonial context with indigenous peoples. And a lot of these plants were like ayahuasca, damiana. So, I mean, really 
psychedelic mind-altering substances and um, how, you know, revered they were from a spiritual perspective and, and a physical, mental, emotional healing perspective. And that was kind of my, um, my jumping off point to say, oh, I could, I could actually study this. I could study plant medicine and its effects on people while also, you know, diving into it on the, on the personal side of things. That yeah, it's it's isn't it's as amazing what a Pandora's box it is when you open that. It's so cool that you got to go to school for that. I they didn't they didn't have that kind of thing offered when uh, when I was first going to college. I I went to school for theater and then later on for critical psychology, <laughs> which actually that was helpful. But um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it was it was fun stuff. What got you into what got you into the dispensary? So. When I graduated, I was working in oncology research, and um, I spent my entire life on the East Coast thus far. So born and raised New Yorker, then was up in Rhode Island for college, then stayed there to do oncology research with the medical school. Um, and I just quickly found out that it was not for me. And at this time, I was thinking, okay, I'll, I'll kind of you know take a gap year, maybe two, before I go on to medical school and um, kind of pursue that, since I did also do pre-medical sciences in addition to my, my plant medicine degree. Um, but while working in the cancer industry, just further became so with Western medicine and its approach and just, you know, decided that this is not, this is not what I want to be spending my time doing. And so I took a big leap of faith and drove my car across the country to Portland sight unseen thinking that I was going to work there for a little while and then eventually go to uh, naturopathy school and get my ND. And when I arrived there, it, it serendipitously kind of lined up that it was a month before the early onset of adult use sales in Oregon. So this was late August, early September, 2015. And um, early onset of adult use sales was October. And so everywhere was hiring. And I thought, okay, you know what? Like I need, I need money. I need a job. Really, I wanted to be in cannabis research, but that that didn't exist yet on on the level where I could participate in it. And so I I got a job at a dispensary. It thankfully happened to be a dispensary that took a really scientific approach to cannabis. That's um, awesome. Got hired for twelve to yeah yeah. It, it was lucky where I ended up. Um, got hired for twelve fifty an hour. It was like this is bullshit. <laughs> But okay, I'll be here. I know that feeling. Find something better. Um, And then I ended up staying for two years because I just loved it. I loved working with patients and I loved the opportunity to really be able to um, study the plant, both, you know, on my own through research and and texts that I had read, but also by connecting with people across the counter. Yeah, I... um... I started working in cannabis at the end of uh, 2012, and uh, and right around the time that you started was when I when I became director of education at Apothecarium. And I, when I looked, I didn't see anybody else who was doing that at that time because it was just so early, you know. So it was mostly people who owned the place, your buyers, your managers, and the people behind the bar. And then I remember, like, because every so often I would Google because I'd be like, where, where where are the rest of my people? And I found you and I was like, ah, somebody else. And you were the only you were the only other person besides me for the longest time that was a director of education. 
And um, and I remember thinking back then that I wanted to reach out to you because of your background. Um, I got into my work. I worked in civil rights before this. And um, when I was in my late 30s, I had stage three colon cancer. And um, my mom is actually a cancer researcher and an oncology nurse, hemonc nurse. So she was she told me, you know, THC would help with my nausea. She'll always say, I never told you to use weed. I was thinking about Marinol, but Marinol was really disgusting. It was it it really actually didn't help at all. It did the opposite. Um, so I used cannabis during my treatment. And then when I got done with treatment, I decided I didn't want to go back to the office and I was going to go back to school and get my master's in org psych. So like you, I took a job in dispensary thinking this will be fun. I, you know, I told my, my CEO, I'm like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll stay for like four years while I finish, you know, my degree and decide whether I'm going to go on to a doctorate program. And then I stayed because <laughs> it was so <laughs> fascinating, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and, and I, like you, I was really lucky to um, be at a company that was much more, I don't know, I guess just more professional and into the science and really had a culture of compassion and respect. And, um, and I really, I just, I stayed and just grew that and really felt proud about bringing, like mentoring other professionals into the cannabis sphere in a way that I, I thought it, it should look like, you know, because it's like, there's, there's different models for dispensaries, some people like to get something, go to a place and just be told everything that's fire and that's cool. And then other people need a little bit more handholding because I think like people don't understand if you like look at a waiting room, well, not now because we're in a pandemic, but in the waiting room of a dispensary, how many different people from all walks of life are in there and how very personal and emotional cannabis can be. So to have like people working in a dispensary that can be that support system and that that vessel of knowledge for them is actually really important, especially for creating a safe container for experimentation. Absolutely. Oh, completely agree. And that was kind of my impetus in going to the owners of Pharma, the dispensary where I was at in Portland, asking general manager for a year and saying, you need a director of education. Let me do that for you because of the wide array of demographics that, you know, we we would see every day. To me, it was so important to have the staff all on the same page, you know, with training and an in-house educational program um, and providing just support on the floor as well to be able to engage and, and you know, provide information um, specific to the customer's needs and wants because, I mean, it was, it ran the gamut from you know, younger people who just wanted the, the most bang for the buck to people who were really inquisitive and interested about the science behind cannabis to um, people who were really trepidatious about even the idea of getting into cannabis, but also were looking for, you know, therapeutic applications. And, and so to have, you know, an educational program in-house at a dispensary, it's so cool to hear that you know, also the director of education at, at the dispensary, um, because I, I just think more dispensaries, and I have seen them in, in recent years, kind of adopt this role, because I do think it's so crucial to just providing the best experience for the customers by educating the staff who then educate the, the consumer market. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Since then, I've, I've switched to like, I'm the public education officer for Apothecarium, but, and my colleague does all of the, the inside training because it has become as we've gone into legalization and, you know, people think, oh, well, legalization, that means that medical cannabis has gone away. But honestly, there are more people than ever before coming in looking for using cannabis for relief. They're just relieved that they don't have to have that conversation with their doctor. Um, although I do believe that they should. And that's one thing I always say, like, I think if you can have that conversation with your doctor, you should, because one, they need to have a full idea of everything that you're taking in so they know what's going on. But two, like I do trainings at UCSF and Kaiser with uh, doctors and nurses and pharmacology students. And, you know, they say they learn so much from hearing the stories from their patients because, you know, we have you know, people will say, oh, there's not enough research. Well, you and I both know that there's a lot of research out there. It's just <laughs> disseminating all of it. And I think part of what, you know, with <laughs> I, I'm, I'm tooting our horns on our behalf here for a moment, but, <laughs> you know, you and I have a lot of practical experience dealing with lots of different people. So we see a lot of patterns and anomalies that we can actually share in training so that people can be helped because everybody's really different. We're walking chemistry experiments. And every time somebody asks me, you know, how how can I get a job like yours? And I'm like, <laughs> for me, it was, I went from, you know, middle management to $15 an hour. And I was really lucky that I was able to swing that because, you know, I live living in San Francisco. That's not the easiest thing. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, I feel like that was a huge part of an education and also just kind of like bringing me, like grounding me, because I think when you're, when you work in an office, it changes kind of your state of how you're looking at things. But when you actually work in, because dispensaries are service industry, it kind of grounds you, gets you, you know, seeing all different types of people. Um, and a lot of people have an issue with that. Um, they, it's, it can be humbling for them because we don't always treat people who work in stores very well. And, um, I think that was one of the things like going back as an adult working in service because like, you know, when I was younger, I worked retail and stuff and you just think, oh, that's just what you do till you do something better. And then you go back to it and you're like, no, you know, I actually really like not being anybody's boss and doing my own thing. But people are kind of like, oh, you work in a dispensary. You must you must you must be a stoner or you must not be educated. And that's one of the things that. I've really, I feel like as a culture, we really need to dispel is like the elitism of people coming for a retail experience thinking that the people that are helping them aren't smart because I work with people with, you know, not PhDs in cannabis, but, you know, PhDs and masters and they're all very, or, and even, you know, there I work with very intelligent people who aren't formally institutionalized and it's, it's one of those things that I think we really need to work hard to break the stigma on because, in addition to working in a dispensary being like people say, oh, your job looks like it's so much fun. And it's like, yeah, you know, when I was behind the bar, it, it could be a lot of fun, but it was also very emotional and it could be really stressful because it's sometimes it's the only for some people, you're the only person they get to talk to during that day. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, so many great points that you brought up there. I mean, I think that it is so important that 
you know, for people who are in um, our roles, you know, I'll say that that are in a more kind of executive point um, and an educational role, not only for, you know, the community at large, healthcare providers, the general public, but also internally for the dispensary. I do think that it is important to always have that string of connection to that entry-level experience and to actually go through it ourselves because it, it, one, allows you to connect with customers in a way that is vulnerable, in a way that, you know, allows you to be able to map trends of consumption where cannabis is plant medicine. So scientific evidence and scientific research, that is awesome. But also it is an incredibly subjective experience considering the unique nature of our endocannabinoid receptor system, the unique nature of just our physiology and and the ever-changing and fluxy nature of that, you know, how we're different in the morning than we are at night, dependent on how um, we've kind of treated ourselves throughout the day. And so collecting that anecdotal evidence over the counter to begin to really see, you know, the ways in which certain products affect certain people. I also really uh, always get excited about the research reports that are published and that have been published, especially by um, apps. I think that there was an app called Relief that was like a patient data tracking app, kind of like a consumption journal, but on your phone. And they published a study with the University of New Mexico, I believe, where they had 10,000 entries from patients and they kind of mapped out, you know, how patients felt with certain cannabinoid ratios um, and, and what kind of symptom relief and, and uh, therapeutic potential they achieved, you know, when they engaged in these different products. And I think that that, coupled with scientific evidence, coupled with scientific research, is really important, the two of them, to be able to inform, um, you know, how we can continue to evolve this industry, not only from a product standpoint, but also from a patient care standpoint. And the best way to collect that information is, um, is behind the counter. And I do think that there is, you know, this, this certain level of ego, this certain level of elitism. Uh, when we talk about education in general, uh, when I, you know, do my trainings and my classes, I often talk to my students and the people who I'm training that, you know, we're not trying to educate people because we know more or we know better. That's, you know, that self-serving kind of ego shit is not going to do anybody any good. Instead, we're coming to this to be able to get patients and to get people, you know, what will make them feel good, what will improve their quality of life. And so to, you know, to be able to kind of finesse that educational experience where, you know, you're not coming right out and telling a patient if they come in and say, I want an indica, you're not going to say, well, actually, cannabis indica is just a species of cannabis and it, it doesn't really determine a consistent effect. And, you know, that's just going to put somebody off. That's right. going to make them defensive, you know, where there's a way to be able to get the person what they want, because that is the that is the goal, while also, you know, spreading information that does have scientific rationale and legitimacy behind it. And I do think, as you mentioned, that healthcare providers need to be a part of the conversation. And actually, I was just on a panel uh, last week where we were talking about kind of, okay, if if we do move forward with federal legalization, like what would we want versus what we wouldn't want? And one of the things that I said is was a big want for me is to make sure to protect those healthcare providers um, from, you know, losing their license if they're going to talk to their patients about cannabis. 
that's so important that, you know, patients can have candid conversations with their doctors to inform them kind of what therapeutic strategy they're going down and for their doctors to be able to be a part of that and to be in alliance with the bud tenders and the dispensaries instead of, you know, this kind of, as, as you put it, you know, the, the kind of elitist, like, disparity that we're seeing um, where it's, oh, if you work in a dispensary, well, then you're just a stoner who loves to smoke weed. Um, I, I don't think that that does the industry or the patient's any good. I think that it's important that we do the work to kind of move beyond that. And I, I do think that that, that also comes with some yeah. actual, you know, benefits for bud tender health benefits um, or uh, a living wage so that they can be able to, to just, you know, live and, and survive in that role. And so that we can get people who do have, you know, that kind of educational attitude um, and that that hustle to be able to actually take on these roles, um, you know, from a, a financial survival perspective. Yeah, yeah. Making them viable careers. That that was one thing that as we started to grow, we were able to do like offer people a living wage, 401k benefits, all of that. And it's it's something that a awesome. lot. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't getting that. It's like there it's. It's a that, and I see all the time on like LinkedIn, like why why is there a high turnover in bud tenders? And it's like, well, you know, it's just not sustainable if you're not supporting people. I, when we were talking about like a uh, federal law, one of the things that I've noticed when I've when I've lectured in other states is, especially when they're putting together their programs, is that these policies aren't based on fact. They're based on, you know, state culture, which is really strong. And and you don't really realize it until you get into like the nuts and bolts of the policies of the individual states and stigma. And I just, I feel like when we're hearing about some of the things that they're proposing on a federal level, I, I ask, you know, I know a lot of people are, where are they coming up with this information? And are the people whispering in their ears, the ones that have the most money, but the least amount of education on cannabis. They're just worried about, you know, making their, their money and going. And, and I don't know what we have to do. I'm not sure how to be able to get to, I know how to do the state level stuff, but on the federal level, it's like, how do we get the federal government to understand, to be able to have the wisdom to choose wisely knowledgeable people. I won't say experts because like when somebody says that I'm a cannabis expert, I'm like, nobody is. We are all constantly learning. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of pressure. Um, But what are, what do you think about like, how do we, how do we approach it so that we're seeing more sound policy around this? Because even like with the stuff with this THC caps, it's like, come on now, let's, let's not treat the public like they're babies. Let's actually, instead of putting all this money into policy around like say New Jersey where they're not allowing home grows and that's bullshit, Mm -hmm. you know, where, why can't we see them putting the money into outreach? Even like when we were looking at legalization in California and that's when I was one of the chairs of the legalization task force here, DPH, the day before we did legalization, put out a sheet that everybody was required to put in every single consumer's bag that had 
incorrect information. And I was really upset because I offered to help them with it. And I was like, this has nothing to do with me selling cannabis. This has to do with keeping people safe. Like, I don't have my Apotha hat on here. I'm doing this as, you know, a patient advocate. And the government does not like to listen to people in the cannabis industry unless they're corporate with deep pockets. Yep. Yep. And it, it, it sucks. I mean, American capitalism sucks. For, for real. It, it's so frustrating to, you know, think that cannabis could go that direction because I think it does give an opportunity for so much more in terms of transmitting, you know, our, our old habits that did value, that do value big big money. And so when we look at federal legislation, we're looking at the, the real risk that big pharma, big alcohol, big tobacco, big ag will just, you know, co-opt this entire industry and remove the small craft businesses, which cannabis, the industry at this point has been built on the backs of people who not only were, you know, risking their lives to do this illegally through prohibition, but then also came into the market um, as kind of craft small small businesses. And so that is a, a big risk and a big fear of mine when we look to federal legalization that, okay, actually, you know, it will just get corrupted and co-opted by, you know, big corporations that, as you said, don't really know how to handle this and um, aren't going to be listening to people who don't have billions of dollars to throw into lobbying efforts. I do think that, you know, the the National Cannabis Industry Association and other, you know, state-specific cannabis associations do as good a job as they can at lobbying and Mm -hmm. trying to pass legislation for the cannabis industry, like, for example, you know, the Safe Banking Act, where we we need safe banking for the industry to be able to grow. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we need to protect healthcare providers and allow them to actually speak about cannabis without fear of losing their license. I do think that we need, you know, universal standard operating procedures among analytical labs, so they're not taking on private um, SOPs that are then causing this 10% variance among lab data. Yeah, what's that about? The industry or the patients. Yeah, it's frustrating, you know, where that's where the federal government, it's like you have you have a lot of experience in, um, in writing out, you know, universal SOPs that apply to every other analytical testing lab across the country. And so get with some, you know, lab people in the cannabis industry and write out these universal SOPs make everyone follow them. You know, that I think is a great place where they can kind of come in and, and help to regulate this a bit more. Um, but it is really frustrating when we see new markets like New Jersey, you know, who in their medical market, I believe that they were, you know, really pretty monopolized. There were only six companies um, that were controlling the entire medical market. And it seems that that is unfortunately, you know, who had the ear of these of the politicians and the lawmakers um, to prevent home growth and, and to prevent people from actually having access to their medicine. On the other end of the spectrum, which I just find so fascinating, is Oklahoma. I'm doing a lot of work in Oklahoma. I'm actually in Oklahoma City right now opening a dispensary, and they went full, like, libertarian laissez-faire. I don't heard. Touch my guns, don't touch my weed. <laughs> don't touch my money. And it is... 
It is actually, you know, it's created an explosive market that I don't think is sustainable, but it has such a low barrier to entry that literally anybody with $2,000 in their savings account can participate in the industry. And so that allows for, you know, an incredibly robust and diverse supply chain. And yes, you know, it, it completely kind of outgrew itself within, um, you know, the last two years. And so there are many growing pains that come with that. Don't get me wrong. But compared to a state like Missouri, that was kind of on the same timeline as Oklahoma, that went with such a strict you know, closed market that they saw a lot of corruption in their licensing process. They um, are Arkansas a really too. hard time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And just having a really hard time filling out the supply chain and are actually not getting quality medicine to patients, you know, which again is the goal of these programs. Um, and so I, I think that Oklahoma, to that point, is kind of a really good case study when regulators do listen to the community and just kind of give a a much longer leash in terms of who can participate and how they can participate. Yeah. I, I, a friend of mine who was, he's originally from Oklahoma. He was here in, in California during the two fifteen days. And in the beginning of legalization, he ended up moving everything to Oklahoma. And he's like, Sarah, it's like California 12 years ago. And I'm like, Whoa, Mm -hmm. Hey, But it does. I mean, even though you might get oversaturated, it gives the opportunity for really great products to hit the market. And, you know, like you said, I mean, there there will be there will be extinction events with that, you know, with Oklahoma because it isn't sustainable. But all the really good products hopefully will be able to continue on because like here in California, You know, I always wondered why every state reinvents the wheel. It's like, look at the other states, see what worked, see what didn't. California overtaxed everything. And one of the main things with legalization was we were going, this was going to be a great way to get rid of the traditional market. Well, guess what? We have a booming traditional market here. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, Mm -hmm. there are some very talented cultivators and product makers in that market But you're also looking at the fact that, you know, I I can't tell you how many people, especially seniors, when we went into legalization, were in tears at the bar because they couldn't afford the medicine that they actually needed. And they're like, well, I guess I'll just go back to my guy. And it's like, that's cool. But know your farmer, because, you know, the only fatalities we've had from cannabis have been from products that have been adulterated or you have a compromised immune system and you've had flour that has like, you know, mold or mildew because (laughs) compromised immune system, you can die from a yeast infection, you know? So we need to like, and not only that, but like one, like with task force, we used to talk about the idea of how about if somebody gets busted for an illegal grow instead of you know, arresting them and pressing charges and sending them to court, we give them a brochure as to how to actually take their, you know, and I'm going to say company, because these are entrepreneurs are really talented people to help, help them go legit. And the bar for actually having a legal company in California is so incredibly high that I can't blame all these talented people for not wanting to participate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just pricing so many people out. And in Oregon, when we switched from medical to adult use, 
we, you know, the state put out this whole campaign of go legal, go legal. Like, you know, it's so much better kind of on the other side. And um, then we had the mass extinction event in 2017 when the market crashed because there was just way too much supply, not enough demand. And, you know, producers really like just just were devastated. And these were people, you know, in Southern Oregon, as you have, you know, in Humboldt County in Northern California, who have been doing this for just years where it is, you know, part of their family's legacy and they transitioned to, you know, the legal market and they put up all this money and involved investors. And then it all came crashing down and they felt that they were sold an empty promise by the state. And so then of course that's going to, you know, further instill mistrust in the state. And if people did, you know, make it through that alive, because there were, uh, a lot of, you know, deaths and, and just suicides that came from that event. Oh, um, my God, yeah. And horrible, horrible. And if they did make it through, you know, then they were not going back to the legal market. You know, they were they were going back to the traditional market because that's where they were actually able to make money. And, I mean, in California, as you're saying, the, it's, the bar is even higher than it was in Oregon, where just the amount of capital that people need in order to participate, in order to, like, play, is, is upsetting. It's upsetting. Yeah, it's, it, it just seems like it's prohibitive by design. And um, mm-hmm. I just don't... I don't... that That's the thing with policy. I don't understand why... The states keep making the same mistakes. Well, I do. I looks like I always say every year. I'm like the word of the year in the industry is hubris, but it hasn't changed in six yeah. years. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's like I, I I hate to sound like a downer like that. I don't mean to be like, um, you know, I, I don't mean to be dogging on the industry, but it really needs help, and we have so many people that you know need our help. And I just don't get it just seems like in a lot of ways, cannabis is kind of like it's like a very macro micro thing about what's going on with the world today. And we have this unique opportunity, actually, to change the way we do business. Like I was I was talking to somebody recently about like the tech industry, you know, good or bad tech, you know, was booming. Like I I worked in tech in the 90s and it changed the way we did business. Some things for the better some things for the worse. Like we have people who like, you know, think it's a badge of honor to work like 24 seven. And I think that was really brought on by the tech industry, but we also have like a more casual environment, um, which was also a good, it was a good thing. And it was brought on by the tech, but with cannabis, it's like we have this opportunity to create, you know, abundance with compassion and, you know, Mm. creating more equity I mean, there are just so many things that we could do with this that could be a model for the way we do business in other areas. And I feel like people are missing a really valuable opportunity. Completely, completely. And I mean, I, I think that's, you know, really seen when we look at kind of social equity and restorative justice and cannabis where, it, you know, there, there are conversations and conversations and conversations that are had around expungement of records and releasing people who, you know, are in jail for cannabis crimes. And, you know, all of this talk happens, but when it comes down to actually taking action, so few get to that step. And that I I find really frustrating, especially when there is such a clear solution. And I think that we 
see that played, you know, out and, and over again and again with this kind of policy where there is there is very there are clear solutions, you know, that we in the industry um, can kind of talk their ears off and present to them at, you know, public kind of hearings and, and the like, but it's up to them to take action. And so often the action just falls completely short and, and it just creates such a frustrating paradigm. And it also puts, you know, the industry at odds with the policymakers, which that is not serving anybody either. We're, no. we're all on the same team, you know, to, we all want to create a robust industry that, yes, makes money, but that also, you know, serves and protects the people who participate in the industry and also serves and protects the patients. And like that, that common goal is somehow missed on, on, you know, the policy side where, where it seems like there's a certain just tension and fight between the two where it just doesn't have to be that way. No, it doesn't. And that's when people will come to the dispensary and be frustrated about, you know, the prices or the overpackaging. Um, and I always tell them because and it's it's sad because it shouldn't have to the burden shouldn't be on the public. But I always tell them, you know, you have to understand that a lot of these decisions are made because they think that the people that are going to be, you know, un, under the influence of this don't know how to make decisions on their own. I'm like, we need to get, you know, active. Like, as a citizen, you, these people who make these policies depend on your votes, a lot of them. So it's, mm -hmm. a, you know, you pay taxes, you work, you use cannabis, you're a productive member of society. Like, the onus is on you to go and talk to them because this isn't the dispensary that's making these decisions. It isn't the people who are creating the products that are making these decisions that are making things so expensive. It's these are the people that we've put into office that are making things so expensive and the people that they hire underneath them. It's stuff like the BCC, you know? And so we need to, it's, it's like a, in some ways it's like, it's almost a good problem to have because like when we had legalization here and we got into adult use, when it passed the next day, people showed up at the dispensary and they're like, Oh, it passed. Now we can get weed without, you know, a recommendation. I'm like, okay, stoner civics 101. <laughs> when we pass something we don't have the foundation yet nobody starts setting up systems in anticipation of something passing it doesn't happen till it's passed so you got a year and i'll see you then but you know people get really frustrated and it's like okay so we need the public to understand how the government works and how to advocate for themselves, because it's through that advocacy that we're really going to see a lot of the change. I mean, that was like even on, you know, the local level with like our task forces, our task force and our oversight committee, which I participated in both. It's like we saw things that were going wrong. We advocated for policy to change some of the things. And some of it was even bad behavior within our own industry because we had people who were in San Francisco um, there are dispens dispensaries were attached to locations. So you have to have your location while you're waiting for your permit. So you're paying for rent on that location. And the permit was not transferable. So it was stuck to that location. So we had somebody who was not a good player in the industry who was actually purchasing buildings with cash so that they could have the permit basically being a pirate taking a permit from somebody who'd worked hard to get it for that location and we closed that loophole good 
But that's just like one example of things that need to be done. And I just I feel like people need to get more involved and they get afraid to speak out about it. But then I'm like, eh, if you're afraid to speak out about it, then you really can't complain about how expensive things are because you're part of the problem. Absolutely. And I think that's where the public education is such an important component of it. And it's so cool, you know, that you are really involved in that because when, when I talk about education, like, yes, we need to, you know, create pipelines, to educate our industry professionals so that they can educate the consumer, but we also need to educate the public at large. And it's, you know, it's not coming from the regulatory agencies. And so then it, it falls on the onus of the industry to do just that. And especially in this last year, just with the, you know, social justice movements really, you know, coming into the public sphere, I think a lot of people on a grander scale saw, okay, if we don't speak up, things are not going to change. And we, you know, we have to be the ones to put pressure on our elected officials to continue to hold them accountable to actually do right the people and our community because they, their job is to serve us. But, you know, they, they don't, they'll make maybe poor decisions, you know, if they, if they aren't told explicitly and continuously what needs to be done and given feedback. And so I, I completely agree with you that that public involvement is so important uh, in, you know, being able to just push for smarter change. Well, and, and in the vein of pushing for smarter change and educating, I wanted to, to ask you about what, what you're doing now, because I know you have a consulting group, but you know, there's there's consulting in the industry for so many different things. So I know our listeners want to know what projects you're working on now and, and just what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So I am the co-founder of Eminent Consulting. And I, I say that I have two arms to my business where I do have an online course curriculum that's really available to anybody, even though it was designed with kind of the butt tender population in mind. It goes through the fundamentals of, of cannabis science. And we help to... Um, provide that training for dispensaries just to fill that gap um, within their kind of training program. And then we also do a lot of craft industry development specifically. So it's just my business partner and I um, working, you know, full time in this, in our consultancy. And we we're really selective with who we choose to partner with. We go with people who, you know, want to adopt a science forward approach who are interested in more craft modality. So, you know, higher quality kind of artisanal products, looking at uh, organics, organic living soil, as far as the cultivation methodology, and then, um, you know, ethical kind of manufacturing methodology to make sure that products are free from contaminants and that they have the, the kind of fullest expression of cannabinoids and terpenes um, that are true to the original plant material. And right now we're we're working on a huge project, our biggest project thus far, where, as I made mention, we are living in Oklahoma City, so we relocated down here in October, and we'll be here through to the end of May, um, and we're working with our client group down here, who we helped them launch their cultivation facility um, last year to the Oklahoma market, so they've been on the market for a year. They do craft, indoor, organic living soil, and they're just crushing it, which is awesome. It, it proved our thesis that, you know, Oklahoma, even with all of its licenses, they do want something that is of high quality. Um, and that does represent, you know, this more craft niche. And so now we are 
project managing the build out and launch of their dispensary brand. So we've been um, basically given full freedom and responsibility to build our dream dispensary, which is amazing. That's it's, so it's cool. It's a huge project and it's like no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> But it's awesome because we, I mean, we have done everything from, you know, design to facility, you know, completely new build out all the way through hiring, training, um, and it will open about a month, April 15th from today. So just like really exciting to be able to, to put this out into the world and also to be able to help move the conversation forward in, in Oklahoma City, you know, when it comes to um product education and, and, um, you know, patient education. Yeah. And just in time for 420. Yes, exactly. Soft launch April 15th, grand opening 420. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm super excited for you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it is, uh, like I said, biggest project we've taken on and, um, I am a perfectionist, so it's, it's definitely like feeling the pressure, but ultimately very, very excited about it. That's cool. And another, another thing I always like to ask, especially because, you know, you being an educator, um, people always ask me about, you know, different books that I like, but what are some of your favorite cannabis education books? Mm, Yeah, I really love uh, the cannabis health index. Oh yeah. It is a wonderful, wonderful text. It's probably my favorite. Um, you know, second to Clark's book, uh, Ethnobotany and Evolution. Um, but it, it's, it's just incredible. And I'm blanking on the author right now for the Cannabis Health Index. But oh, it's Uva. Uva Blessing. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just love how she ties in kind of mind-body medicine and really so comprehensive how she just goes through, you know, all of the the different ways that cannabis can be used to achieve certain therapeutic goals. I, I love it. Yeah. Have you, um, uh, Uva has a new book on, um, on CBD ratios and I haven't checked it out yet. Have you checked that out? No, no, I haven't. I'm really excited to do that. I'm going to have, I believe I'm going to have him on the show next month. I've got to, I've got to confirm, but um, he's doing some really cool stuff. He's also got a, a product, an app called Canakees that just got released. And um, it's, cool. yeah. And they're, they're like connecting like research. Um, and a, it's, it's, you know, normally when people say, oh, you know, I'm putting together an app to help people figure out what works for them. I'm always just kind of like, mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> but, you know, it, U- Uva doing it is a whole different thing. It's actually, I, I got to take a look at it before they released it. And it's fascinating. I'm really interested to see um, how how that's going to work. Um, it's by far the, it, it's the only one I've been excited about so far. <laughs> so Awesome. Oh my God, that that is really exciting. Because I, I, I definitely... Um feel you on, you know, the, the many different apps that are coming out to yeah. kind of track experience. But as you said, Uva doing it is a whole different ball game. Oh, I, I got to look that up. And also um, their book on, on CBD ratios. Yeah, well. check them out. And I'd really, I, I'd really be interested to hear what you think of it. Because, you know, it's like, 
you I feel like we come from very much like the same school of thought around this so you'll have to let me know what you think definitely definitely cool um what else do you want to talk about we've got a few more minutes before we close Hmm. I think tell me a little bit more about um about what you're working on right now or what's exciting you. What's this, exciting me? This moment. Well, <laughs> this year has been a really interesting well, and I I mean like from 2020 like a year ago this week. <laughs> so mm-hmm. now it's been a really interesting time. It's um I think like I went from doing my classes in person, which, you know, people used to ask me to put them online. And I was always like, oh, you know, it's not that I'm a Luddite or afraid of tech, but I've always been a huge fan of like the personal, you know, communication and giving privacy to people. So like teaching a class, answering questions and people being able to come up to me after class and privately ask questions that they may not want everyone Mm. else to know, you know, having that connection. So I always fought it. Um, but now I'm taking all my, I've taken all my classes onto zoom. I started last summer and that's been really cool because there are people from all over the world attending class. And, um, like I had somebody from Australia last week, but we've been getting people from, um, Canada, the UK, Australia. Um, and even though it's still in the States, it's far away. We've had Puerto Rico, you know, a lot of people on the East coast, Mm. Um, and I'm really excited about just all of the all the states that are starting to open up towards it. But we have a lot of work to do to erase the stigma, because I think for educators like you and me, it's one of the things is we erase the stigma of the past. But we also because of the boom in cannabis, there's a lot of false promises that are being made around how it works with your body particularly with CBD and I'm not knocking CBD because it's wonderful. My body's totally built for it, but you know, there's a lot of things to take into consideration. Like I am, you know, doctors always recommending CBD, but not understanding the interaction with cytochrome P450 always, (laughs) always throws me for a loop. Mm -hmm. I'm like, when I say that to them, they're like, Oh, had no idea. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) You know, that kind of stuff. So just like this year has been a year of nimbleness and really Mm. kind of I've always been more of a low key educator. And so being being forced to put everything out in the ether, whether it's my Zoom classes or doing IG lives, um, you know, I had been doing the podcast already, um, but just really figuring out how to get to a larger audience so that wherever they go they're educated and prepared to make, you know, empowered decisions for themselves. That's been one of my big things. And then, um, I'm, I'm in the midst of writing a book, but, uh, you know how those things go. Thanks. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. (laughs) You know, it's, it's like, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing because so many people are coming out with books. Um, and, I uh, I just like people have been my editor has been after me for a while to do something and I've been like eh, I don't know you know there's a lot of good books out there already and she's like no really the time is now like do it and so I think it's a it's one of those processes and I think as women too we get like some of that um, imposter syndrome stuff where you're like should I do it oh, totally is it needed <laughs> you know and you've got everybody being like do it do it that's exciting. So that's been like, 
I think this past year has been very introspective and then also very much like pushing myself forward because I'm a I'm an ambivert more towards the introvert side. So like I've never been about like the story being about me. I'm always more interested in what other people are doing and just communicating with them. So that's Mm. that's been a really interesting thing. And just being able to partner with other people in the industry that I respect and believe in and working, you know, just on little projects or even like, like with Mara Gordon last spring, we did a series of, of zoom education presentations where we had people, you know, ask questions and it was just really nice to, to be able to, to do that, but also to be able to partner with a friend and connect with them because we're all so separated right now. So that's been, that's been really my big thing. And just the whole like shifting to, if instead of working, you know, in the dispensary or an office, like doing it all from home. Um, I have two ring lights now. I feel kind of <laughs> <laughs> on your way to a production studio. Oh man. You know, that's what it, it kind of feels like that. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's, you know, it's cool. It's, it's, it's really interesting to see. And it's just, and it's also just been kind of a year of observation to kind of see like who, who actually can, can make it through this and who is not, not in a, not in a schadenfreude sort of way, just a, a very objective, just kind of like taking a look at it because I've always been about, you know, either trends or patterns and, and just kind of observing that because I think especially like with everybody at home, it's like the people who have stuff to do haven't stopped having stuff to do. Um, and I have an immense amount of compassion for people who are really super social and haven't been able to go to any cannabis events because I'm kind of the opposite. Like, you know, I've been getting a little bit of cabin fever lately, but for the most part, like I'm built for quarantine. Honestly. I feel you. I feel you. I have actually been really grateful that I don't have to go to any events. <laughs> I am I'm definitely somebody who has more of that like homebody, love the coziness of my home. And I always love, you know, when I get there and when I'm connecting with people and having conversations, I really do enjoy it. But right. it's always that kind of like lead up to just getting it getting out and going where I'm like, Oh, I just would rather not. Yeah. <laughs> I just would rather not. So I, I hear you on, you know, feeling, feeling filled up, you know, by, by being at home most of the time where it's, it's really okay. It's not a big deal, but I do also credit, um, as you're saying, kind of that, that feeling of satisfaction with still being able to work. If I, if I wasn't working right now, or, you know, if I, if I wasn't doing things or or being productive in that way, I think that my, my kind of internal, uh, weather system would be totally different than than where I'm at right now. Yeah, that's it. And I think for me, like with, uh, with a podcast, it's been nice because I, I love, I love one-on-one or small group conversations. Like I do like going to events, but I'm always really depleted when I'm done. But if I get a couple of good, mm-hmm. like intimate conversations with people, I'm like, I feel fulfilled. But, you know, yeah. don't throw me in with a group of people and expect me to like, I'm not, I'm not a wallflower, but you're not going to see me flitting from person to person. Like I have a friend who's, 
extraordinarily outgoing and a total connection maker. And I'm like, show me your magic. <laughs> just Yeah, it's a talent. It really is a kind of like, oh, it's, it's such a spark in people that I do so admire. But I'm I'm right there with you. That If you throw me to a group, most likely I'll spend my time observing and listening and collecting information. Yeah. <laughs> I, I won't really participate as much. But then, you know, one-on-one or all group, then totally, you know, I can kind of come alive in the chatty zone. But in a, in a larger setting, I'm much more interested in, um, in just listening to other people and kind of observing and, and collecting the, the different information that people throw out there. Yeah, I think that you get a lot from that. It's, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like knowing, knowing when you want to contribute, knowing when you want to step back and take it all in. And I just... That's something like that I used to be really hard on myself about. Cause I was like, you need to jump in there and do more. And it's like, well, I am doing something. Like, I am actually participating, but I'm taking things in too. So, like a friend of mine once said, you know, when you say something, I know you're not just talking to talk because you're a woman of few words. Although you wouldn't know this with the two of us talking <laughs> today. <laughs> but there you go, a one on one conversation where, you know, I've been really looking forward to talking with you. And, um, you know, so we had a, we had a lot to say to one another and that's a whole different ball of wax. Yes. It's different just energetically too. I think when you just like feel, feel kind of the the space, at least in the way that, you know, I feel in in those spaces. And, um, I, I always, you know, I'm, I'm very cognizant that when I do speak and when I do say something, I've wanted to be meaningful and I wanted to not, you know, pack a punch, but I do want it to resonate in a way where I'm, I'm not really interested in just filling the air with, with chatter. Um, and that's why one-on-ones are so cool to me because it's a volley back and forth where you can not only learn so much about somebody else, but you can also really share, you know, more vulnerably, I think. Yeah. I love that. I, I, I'm really like, it's, it's nice because it's, there's so many wonderful people in our industry um, I am always a big fan of making genuine connections with people where it's like, we may never work together, but I'll always be happy to see you because it's not, it's not necessarily about the work. It's about our shared passions. Yes. Yes, completely. And I do think that that's something very special about the cannabis industry is that many people come into it with such an excitement and a passion for the plant and for patients and for you know, what, what this plant represents and what it can do for us and for the world. And so being able to connect with people on that uh, transcendent of, you know, working relationships or networking, that, that is the most exciting to me when connecting with other industry players and folks. Yeah, I, I, the first time that I really experienced that was was it 2014, I think it was, when Patients at a Time was in Portland. And um, that was my first conference. I ended up presenting the next year, I think. God, the time flies. You know, I, I have no concept of time anymore. I always have to look. <laughs> but it was just like meeting other people that were really passionate about the work. That's actually where I met Mara. Um, and I met some some amazing activists that have been doing the work long before I, I ever was in this field. Um, and just really making those connections and, and feeling like the passion, but also like the deep, rich history 
um, and just really honoring mm. that. And I really like that. And, and hey, I love Portland. It's it's a beautiful place. It is. Oh, I miss it right now. Being being out in Oklahoma City, I definitely miss the the vibrant greens. We're pretty beige here. Yeah. Right now. Great really, really tucked into the Great Plains. Um, but it it only kind of furthers my appreciation for the PNW and just how special, special it is. Oh, it totally is. That's it's one of those places where um my husband and I like have talked about like the Oregon area living like he's a well, he's retired now, but he's a touring musician. And so he spent a lot of time in Portland and and his his uh, old bandmate. Well, they still play together, but it's only occasionally I call him his work husband. <laughs> he lives in Portland. And so we we keep thinking, you know, when this is when all this is done, we'll get in the car and we'll do a road trip because it's just those are the things that I miss. Like I miss road trips and you know being that we're in the bay area we're so lucky with all the things that we have like once once a month we'd usually go somewhere in wine country even if we didn't like you know get a lot just like pick a pa- like pack a picnic lunch and get a bottle of wine and just take in the air and relax you know it's it's like a little mini vacation so we yeah. have, we have a yeah. week off this month and we're like what are we going to do <laughs> I guess we'll cook food and oh that's so, so fun that you know yeah we find those moments to get out of the house and just go into you know nature and just like be with each other that's nice it is nice it is nice it just would be it's I can't wait for the day where we can actually decide whether we're going to do a staycation or we're going to fly somewhere I'm like yeah I'm super yeah. excited <laughs> Yeah, to have that option again, we'll oh definitely we'll look forward to that point. Oh, totally. Oh, and also because we are getting close to our wow, we, hey, we hit the one hour mark, Emma. So for our yeah, li- I know we could talk a lot longer. I'm sure. Well, for our listeners, how can they get a hold of you through websites and social media? Yeah, so you can find uh, my company Eminent Consulting at eminentconsultingfirm.com. And then for me, you can find me on Instagram at Emma Chafin. Awesome. Emma, it's been a pleasure. Um, for listeners who want to follow Planted on social media, we are on Facebook, we are on Instagram, and we are on Twitter. And it is just Planted with Sarah. Um, the website is www.plantedwithsarah.com. You can also find us on our parent network, which is Radio Misfits Network. There's a lot of other great podcasts on there for you to check out. Um, We're also on Pandora, Spotify, Google, Apple, Amazon, TuneIn, and Stitcher. So basically anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcasts. And uh, we hope that Planted is one of them. Um, Emma, a pleasure. I just really, really was looking forward to speaking with you and I really hope to continue the conversation and hopefully we can, uh, we can have a smoke in person one of these days. That would be so fun. I look forward to that day when, when we can get on. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's been a, a real pleasure to get to chat. Oh yeah. Me. Oh, likewise likewise and for our listeners we i think i've mentioned this the past few episodes but we are two episodes a month now so tune in for our next episode and until we meet again take care of yourselves it's a crazy world out there so be good to one another and until next time 